This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Karankwa, and Hohokam people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, aka The Blazing Blurred, and this is episode 184. On this episode, I speak with Kiara Wynn, a former USC student organizer and the creator of Artistas de Color Unidos, which is an online art gallery for emerging artists of color, which is very much on brand for Militantly Mixed. Artistas de Color Unidos and Militantly Mixed share a mission in that we want to create safe spaces, community-based spaces, in which whatever those categories are, feel like they can exist and, and be comfortable in their own space. With Artistas de Color Unidos uh, as, as a safe space for artists of color to exhibit and submit their work, kind of separate, I guess, from the white gaze, because the art world can be very white, and in particular in L.A., where uh, Kiara is from, the art world is very white. And there are times when you can feel the tokenization or the uh, exotification of artists of color when there's only one or two exhibited in a predominantly white space. And that affected Kiara enough that she wanted to start an organization that would make a safe space, a for-us, by-us, about-us space for emerging artists of color. Militantly Mixed similarly wants to be a safe community-based space for mixed people to be their mixed-ass selves in, and that is why I feel so aligned with the work that Kiara is doing. I first met her back in, I want to say March or so, uh, earlier this year, and I was asked to be a guest on her podcast, which is a companion podcast to her art gallery, Artistas de Color Unidos, in which we talked about the Blasian experience. And me, in that space, being the elder Blasian, I found myself hardcore auntieing Kiara based off of a situation that had occurred earlier, a couple of weeks prior to our meeting, uh, during Lunar New Year at USC. We don't get into that on this episode. Uh, she only references it to me while we were talking and saying, um, compared to what happened to me in February, and that is what we were talking about, the Lunar New Year event. Um, but I'm not getting into it on this show. She does reference it very briefly, just in that statement alone on this thing. But we get we got together to talk about uh, the Blasian experience, and I found myself really wanting to be protective of Kiara because I was seeing this weird exclusion and invalidation thing that is happening right now. I say weird because it's different than the kind of exclusion and invalidation that I experienced when I was her age. Um, but there we go, when I was her age. In this conversation that I had with Kiara today, and probably the one that I had with her a few months back, I officially earned my certificate in 
being a mixed auntie. I've been calling myself an auntie for a while, but I realize now there's no escaping it for real because I'm now finding myself saying, when I was your age, or um, in my time, this didn't happen that way. So I can't go back. I have officially entered my auntie era, and you can't take it away from me. Uh, but I found myself wanting to be very protective of Kiara and the generation that she exists in because something is happening, a weird, to me, weird alignment is happening both from monoracial groups and the current mixed community of that age range, eight, let's say the 18 to 24, yet coming to into their adulthood age range, in that one ra a monoracial category is saying, don't claim us like that. Remind everybody that you're mixed. And then the mixed community of that same age group is saying, don't claim that other racial category. Tell everybody you're just mixed. And it's weird to see those two groups so aligned because in both cases there is invalidation and erasure. And it's... I'm I'm not yet equipped to maneuver it. I am seeing it and getting really upset and um, wanting to make sure that I still maintain enough composure that I can have these conversations, but not flip out in the way it's I'm seeing it impacting younger mixed folks that are that are still working it out. Like you will be working out your mixed race identity throughout your whole life, but in that early time so critical to to find acceptance and and to be your mixed ass self like that's important so it feels strange and uh, an example that we cite in this episode will be about the difference between zendaya getting the award uh the emmy in a category where they called her the first black woman and some of the black community coming forward and saying but she's mixed she's not black and the difference between Halle Berry winning the Oscar about 17 or so years ago as the first black best actress and no one questioning her blackness. But these are two, this is the same scenario in two different generations that are being re reacted to very differently. And so that's kind of what we're talking about when, we're, when we get into it. One thing I do want to highlight about this episode is something that I feel like I need to just clarify context-wise, a, a statement that I made. In my head, it was clear that I was talking about the difference between the guests that I had in early days of the show and the guests that I have currently under this category. And when I listened back to it in the edit, I realized I never stated, said that. And so it sounds like I'm making a very blanket statement about mixed white Asians and how they are accepted in Asian spaces. But what I'm meaning to say, or what is in my head when I'm saying it, is that in recent conversations I've had with mixed white Asians in either militantly mixed or in other Asian American spaces, because I've been finding myself in more Asian American spaces lately, I'm learning that this current generation is experiencing acceptance within Asian cultures as white mixed Asians, um, regardless of whether or not they present obviously Asian or obviously white. Whereas in the early days of this podcast, I was speaking to white mixed Asians that were saying, depending on what they look like, is whether or not they were accepted by Asian people. And I was just notice, noting that, like, that's so interesting that that has shifted like that in such a small amount of time. I've only been doing this show for four years. But in listening back to the edit, none of that context is in that statement. And I was like, wow, that's, a, that's really strange for me to, to drop something with so little context context. So I just wanted to highlight it here um, for y'all as you listen to this episode. 
uh, in a very terrible segue, I'm going to say, speaking of being your mixed ass self, <laughs> um, I'm about to release the 2022 Be Your Mixed Ass Self fundraiser t-shirt. I have the design finally finalized. When I mentioned it last week on that little mini episode, I hadn't decided on the final design yet, and I was deciding between a couple of designs I was only ho-hum about, but later in the week, an idea popped in my head. I talked to an artist. I got it, and it looks amazing, and I'm so excited about it. So I'm ready to announce that the Be Your Mixed Ass Self 2022 t-shirt will be available on October 15th, which is a little bit early than I had originally planned, but that's because I don't think I can keep it a secret for very much longer because I'm so excited about this design. Um, and I'm waiting for a sample t-shirt to arrive to see that it looks good. If it looks good and everything's cool, I can release the shirt on October 15th. Um, but unfortunately, that, that sample t-shirt is going to arrive at my house in Houston while I'm in New York for Comic-Con. So I have to try to at least be patient for the next week and change. And, uh, and then I'll be able to share it with y'all. Uh, I hope this shirt saves the show. <laughs> uh, I say save the show because financially I'm struggling right now, uh, both personally and for the show. I have run out of resources, so I'm entirely reliant on Patreon sponsorship right now. And unfortunately, Patreon sponsorship barely covers two-thirds of what I need every month, let alone the upcoming fees that are going to be due in December and January. So um, hopefully, y'all will all buy this shirt because it's a dope-ass shirt, but also because um, I am going to need to raise quite a bit of money to finish out this year for the show. I will talk about that more on a future episode. Right now, I'm going to get into this episode. Uh, and we'll, 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 we'll do a solo episode in the next couple of weeks to kind of let you know what's been going on uh, on the back end of Millet'sly Mix and, and the life of <sighs> depressed-ass Charmaine Fury. Um, before I do that, I just want to remind you all that you can help support the show by going to patreon.com slash Mix and sponsor the show as low as a dollar a month to as high as anything you wish. And there are different rewards depending on which level you choose. Uh, in addition to that, you can always go to paypal.me slash mix and drop some coins in the tip jar there. All the funds that are dropped in either Patreon, PayPal, or by the purchasing of t-shirts after the production fees are covered go into the Militantly Mix part of the Main Hustle Media bank account and uh, helps keep us going and growing. So there's going to be some major fundraising happening in the next couple months to, to save the current direction of the show. If I'm not able to raise the funds that are needed, I'm going to have to change what Militantly Mix does. And I'm working on a plan B for Militantly Mix as well in case I'm not able to raise enough funds. But it is what it is. I'm dealing with it in therapy, and I will talk about it in a couple weeks. Before we get into today's episode, though, I do just want to say I did drop a little 10-minute promo with uh, Sarah Lotus and myself from the Mixed Bloom Room to talk about the upcoming cohort of the Mixed Bloom Room that starts on October 16th. Uh, Sarah Lotus is a, a guest, has been a guest on Militantly Mix in the past and um, has done a couple Mixed Auntie-related things with me. Uh, she's since become a friend. She is an awesome person. But she created this program for mixed adults that kind of helps with learning how to communicate about your own mixedness, empower, empower your sense of who you are within your mixed race identity. Uh, and it's 
chock-a-block full of tools to help you learn how to cope and or communicate better about kind of the things that you are going through within your mixedness. It's like a mixed race confidence program. It is bespoke in that it is kind of geared towards whoever is within the cohort. I mean, there are tools and, and lessons that are in the program, but as the cohort itself develops, there might be some things that need more work than others, and therefore the focus will be in those areas. It is a really, really good program, and I'm actually still um, in communication with my cohort members because it's such a, it's such a singular experience that you have with these people uh, that it, it becomes really special. So I wanted to let you all know that that is about to have its next cohort starting October 16th. It's an eight-week program. If you would like to follow that, please go to Mixed Bloom Room on Instagram, Facebook, or MixedBloomRoom.com to check out that program. I really, really encourage you that if you, if you feel like you need something in addition to, say, therapy, in addition to, say, listening to Militantly Mixed, in addition to, to participating in community groups, um, the Mixed Bloom Room is absolutely something you should try. It's amazing. So I want you all to know about that. Uh, but I guess that's pretty much it. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Kiara Wynn. Today, I am joined by someone who I've guested on their podcast before. My guest today is Kiara Wynn. Uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to everybody and then let's get into it. All right. Um, I am Kiara Wynn. I just graduated with my bachelor's of psychology and bachelor's in NGOs and social change from the University of Southern California. Um, I also currently run an online arts gallery for, made by and for emerging artists of color. Um, it's called Artistas de Color Unidos. We are on Instagram at ADC Unidos X, um, mostly because ADC Unidos was taken. Um, and then oh, we really? also have a website, www.adcunidos.com. Um, I also currently am serving an AmeriCorps year with an organization called Changes, and their whole mission is to like get youth excited about activism. That's cool. And you, you have been like throughout your college career, you were, you were doing like black Asian solidarity type stuff with, with everything. And we, we can talk about that or not talk about it however much you want. But before we get into it, why don't we uh, do the thing that we hate when monoracial people ask us? Oh yeah. <laughs> what um, is your mix? <laughs> black and half Vietnamese and I am first generation. So I was born in America while my dad was born in Vietnam my mom mm. was also born in America but like on my dad's side I'm first gen it is funny to be like a a mixed half like so on my side and my family both of my grandmothers are from different countries and both of my grandfathers are American my parents were born well my dad was born abroad because of the military but he's American he was American and my mom was born here but lived all over the world so 
I feel like I grew up with the immigrant experience and yet I was born here and one of my parents were born here and two of my grandparents were born here. So I'm kind of second and third generation, but also completely like multiple generation American. It's very strange. Um, so in your case, you grew up, do you grow up in California? Or did you just go there? For I did. School? I've actually lived in California my whole life. Um, I did like moved to Oregon for one year and then I spent a summer in Austin. Um, but yeah, I grew up in California. Okay. Uh, so why don't we get into a little bit of what, what was it like growing up as a black and Vietnamese kid in Southern California? I think it's an interesting question because I always think about how like being mixed is such a big part of my identity because my parents were separated, but they always emphasized the fact that I was mixed and like, to appreciate and you know respect both of my cultures um I think my dad and my mom they both like understood that but I remember I was really little um and I was at one of my dad's family parties you know like the big Asian parties there's a bunch of shoes outside the door um, <laughs> you know, there's eight tons of food on the table and I remember one day I was sitting down and I was maybe like seven and I just looked around at everyone and I was like wow I look nothing like these people because <laughs> most of my dad's family, they're like, they are paler, like, you know, on the lighter, on the light skin side of being Southeast Asian. Uh, my cousin, she is half Filipina, but like, she was like a baby at this time. And like, she's more tan now, but at the time I think she wasn't like as mm. like, well, no one was dar as dark as me basically. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Hmm, I look like none of these people. And I think that kind of pushed me to prove to everyone that I was Asian, um, which eventually led to me being closer to my Asian side. Um, but my mom says that even as a child, I was closer to my Asian side and I always have been, which is really interesting because I don't remember that. Like before that mm. instance at my dad's family's party, I don't remember this. My mom swears it's true my whole life. I'm like, okay, mom, <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can see how that kind of stuff would sort of naturally happen. Although I imagine, mostly because I, I have a similar thing, is that I gravitated more to the side of the family that I didn't, like, in terms of skin tone, didn't look like. Like, I physically look like my black side of the family, but I'm, I'm, I have my Asian skin tone, essentially. And I have straight hair, I have Japanese textured hair, um, but it's not that I didn't gravitate towards my Japanese side. I just, I call myself weekend Japanese because it was more like I couldn't be Japanese at school or anything like that, but I could be black at school. Um, so I think it's a weird thing. Like we, I, it, it, we either tend to try to gravitate to the side we look the most alike, but you and I are really ambiguous in our things. I mean, I think you can tell we're, or at least I can tell we're mixed because I'm always looking for mixed people, but you know, depending on how much of a, a much attention someone's paying to us, whether or not they can pick up, you know, even ballpark what we are. Um, that's interesting that you kind of naturally go. And do you have siblings? You're an only child? Um, I do, but they're not my dad and my, like my dad and my mom. Right, okay. So from my dad and my mom, I'm the only child, but I do have siblings who are also mixed. My dad got married when I was like 10 mm. um, and his wife is um, black, white, and Native American. Mm. Um, so my siblings are like a whole cultural mesh melting pot basically yeah 
Um, yeah, but they all look Asian. My dad has some strong genes. Like that man, his genes very strong. Yeah, because you do like I would say, even though I know I said that you're ambiguous in your presentation, but you do look Asian to me, but you do also look black to me. And I know that I'm looking because I'm a black Asian also. And I'm just like, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this. Um, because I that's, I just naturally do that whenever I see mixed folks, I get excited about w what I can pull out. Um, but you, you, we talked a, a while back when we were talking on your show it's a mixed bag as to when you're seen as either, it's like the inconvenient times yeah. that you're sort of seen as black or Asian, depending on what space you're occupying. Right. It's very interesting. Cause I, I was just talking to my mom about this. I'm like one of her friends, because for me, I feel like, well, okay. I went to really diverse schools. My mom swears I went to all white schools. I, I don't think I did. <laughs> But maybe my friend group was just really diverse. But mm. in elementary school, you're in the same class. So how I made these friends in class. So I'm still confused. Was I just in the class that had all the POC? Whereas <laughs> I, I went to an all-white school in elementary school. I'm like, okay, then explain my diverse friend group. This, it's not, the math is not adding up. <laughs> but it's very interesting to me because for the most part, I've only ever been seen as Asian. Like I, Asian people can tell I'm Asian and I know that Asian babies can too. I know they can't talk, but the way that Asian babies stare at me, <laughs> I know that they know. I just, <laughs> I just know that they know. That's it's, funny. I don't know how to explain it, but they, the way they stare at me, I know they know that I'm Asian. That's funny. Um, But I don't know. I feel like growing up, I wasn't close to, like I said, I wasn't close to my black side. Like I, I'm, I'm really close to my mom. Mm -hmm. Like it's really close to her. But in terms of like growing up, I guess I just never really identified with my black side. Like I knew that I was black and Vietnamese, but my best friend, she was black and Korean. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, well, also, when you're that young, you're not really thinking about your race, like, not right, so yeah. much, not until you do, like, the cultural, at least for me, like, I didn't think about it until they asked us to do those, like, cultural presentations on, like, our family background. But something that's interesting to me is that the way that I've experienced exclusion from the Black community, mm -hmm. I remember, so senior year of high school, I took African-American literature, like, I, I was very privileged to go to a school that afforded us the opportunity to choose our English class. And there were like a oh, bunch okay. of things. And I chose African-American literature because I wanted to learn more. Like, I think I had a desire to connect to my identity then. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I, I, I don't know what made me connect to it. And then I was in marching band or I was in color guard, like the flag spinning people. Mm -hmm. And I got injured. So during my spring semester of, I got injured in my fall semester of my senior year. In the spring semester, I decided to join Black Student Union because I was essentially just filling up my time and I didn't feel comfortable being in the band room anymore. Right, yeah. Um, so I tried to fill up my time. I joined BSU and it was all fun until we went to this national conference or not, I think it was like a statewide conference in Sacramento, California. And I remember there was, there was this one day and it was like the first day we were there, or maybe the second day. And they started having a conversation about like relationships and dating and all of the people around me, all the girls around me were like, yeah, well, black men only want to date Asian women. 
And I just sat there because at the mm. time I had gone a couple of dates with this guy who was black. And I was like, huh, weird. And I like started feeling really uncomfortable. Oh, it got in also, your head a little bit. My BSU, my Black Student Union was very like, they were really welcoming. But that was the first time that I was like, I experienced an exclusion. Although I know that was more like, you know, it's more internally. Mm-hmm. I experienced that exclusion because it was really uncomfortable for me to be there as a mixed person. Were they? Did you feel like they weren't seeing you as uh, as mixed Asian, and they just said it, or they were only seeing you as Asian when they said it? I'm really not sure because it was like it was a it wasn't just my BSU; it was a bunch of other ones. So it was like a bunch of people in the room, right? Mm-hmm. So the topic came up. But I was at the table with my, like, with my union. I'm not sure. Like, I think internally, I just all of a sudden started feeling like I shouldn't be there. Like, mm. it was really weird. I was like, well, I I am Asian, but I'm also Black. And it was a very weird moment for me. Because everyone I've met who is half Black and half White, everyone I know, they've always connected to their Black side. And I don't mm-hmm. have that experience. Mm-hmm. And then... I loved my African-American literature class, even though I was taught by a white guy, which was really weird to me. But he was, <laughs> he was a really good teacher. Really nice. He still teaches there. I like, I, he was very nice, but mm. I did think that was funny. Yeah. Um, but I loved that class. So I decided to minor in black studies in college. Um, my, I think it was like winter quarter, freshman year. It might've been spring quarter. I'm not entirely sure. But um, one of those, we were sitting in class and we were reading like an article, not an article, I don't know, it was like a chapter of a book or an essay or something. And all of a sudden, all the black people in the room, they started talking about this experience like that was we were reading about in the little in the thing mm-hmm. about how their parents had kicked them out at some point in their lives. And, you know, I'm really glad that my mom never kicked me out like I'm very glad that I don't have that experience. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it felt really isolating because I never experienced that. And as someone who was like, I should be able to identify with these people, I don't. And like, it was, it was honestly kind of excruciating because I felt like I belonged there less than the white people in that space. Mm. When I tell people that story, they're like, well, white people belong everywhere. I'm like, but that's not the point. The point is, yeah, I didn't like, you know, not that. The point is that, you know, I felt even more far removed, mm-hmm. though I share an identity with these people. I remember I went to the bathroom. I cried. I dropped the minor the next day. I like I refused to go through it again. I remember you bringing this up when we talked before. And um, I remember my auntie moment kind of kicking in because uh, I think a lot of stuff was happening for you in that moment is that coincidentally, the people who happened to be in that classroom all happened to have that shared experience but that being the black experience should not have been necessarily what you felt you know like you but it just so happened everything was telling you you're in a black studies class and all the black people that happen to be there are all sharing this experience you're a mixed black person but you're not sharing it and so like you're having a whole bunch of stuff happening in that moment and it's unfortunate that you were in that situation without someone to step in to like lay context in there for you so that you could have continued on potentially in the major, maybe found other ways in which you would have connected. 
Yeah, there's so much like that story breaks my heart because I I know that that was a very specific and strange coincidence that you happen to have that because I'm also a mixed black person who grew up predominantly black and I don't have the kicked out of the house experience, you know, like, and in fact, my kicked out of the family type experience is on my Asian side. So like, I don't want to say that because I have that experience from my Asian side, it's all Asians do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, so I, I felt, I, yeah, I remember you telling that story. Um, and I, I feel, I feel bad that that felt so exclusionary for you. There's also another thing that's happening between the conversation that you and I had before that is, has been weighing really heavy on me this year in particular. And I, I have this um, these series of other episodes called the Mixed Auntie Confidential episodes where I'm joined by a fellow uh, mixed auntie and we, we're talking about things in terms of just like mixedness as it as it's changing because it's changing and evolving like crazy, not, not just in the fact that multi- more people are becoming mixed, but the stuff that affects me as a mixed black Asian and the stuff that affects you as a mixed black Asian, because we're divided by about 20 years or so is so drastically different that some of the stuff that you tell me, I'm, I'm just going that happened. Cause it is not because same thing. It wasn't my experience. Right. So I found myself to be very welcomed in black spaces and very not welcomed in Asian spaces. And you have somewhat the reverse but I I feel like I had fairly even access between my Japanese and my black side. It's just that I tended to gravitate. I well, I, it's I guess it's not accidental that I say weekend Japanese. I spent a lot of time with both sides of my family. But when I was in school, I was around the black kids because those are the people who accepted me. I even looking as pale as I am, I was black. Whereas if I entered when I in high school, I entered the Asian student union and everybody asked me why I was there. And then I would say, well, I'm, you know, Japanese. And and they're like, but you're black because they know because I was in both. I was in BSU and yeah. but you're black. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm Asian, too. I'm the same amount of Asian and same amount of black. But um, a couple of things that were happening for me when I was in school was that not only was I was mixed Asian and therefore that space was not welcoming to me. I was also a Japanese Asian and everybody else there were um, Vietnamese, Chinese, Korean, Filipino countries where Japan had occupied, committed atrocities. And therefore their entire life, they've been hearing negative things about Japanese people from their older generation. So when a Japanese person's walking in thinking like, I'm an Asian too. I, so I had a couple levels of removal and what your generation seems to be experiencing is is that black people are starting to the younger generation of black people are starting to separate being black and being mixed black when that wasn't the case for my generation or the generations before me it was pretty much the one drop rule where i when i was coming up just like you were a little bit black you're all black um and it wasn't done in a way that wasn't welcoming and it wasn't even done in a way that was excluding my asianness it it was mostly like oh yeah she's black she's got a japanese mom is kind of how i was brought up and you have such a different experience of that that um and i'm hearing it more from people people your age which is why i'm starting to feel really like an auntie now um so it's I feel bad that you've had these run-ins of where it really like if you were just born even 10 years earlier you would not have had that same experience because they would have, you would have 
been welcomed as a black person without not acknowledging that you were also Asian. But that seems to be what's happening for you now. But what about on the Asian side? When you enter Asian spaces, even though like in your personal life, your family and all that kind of stuff, you're engaging more in Asian, uh, in your Asian culture, Asian spaces. When is you being mixed black? When is that coming up or how is that coming up for you? So when I when I enrolled in USC, I transferred as a sophomore and I went to career fair because I was a transfer student. And, you know, when you're a transfer student, you don't have you haven't made the friends that everyone else has made. Yeah. Yeah. There since they're a freshman. And I found um, the Vietnamese Student Association and I I didn't join that year. I joined my junior year during the pandemic because one of my friends kept telling me, Kiara, you should join. And mm-hmm. He kept pestering me about it. So I guess if you're annoying good enough, <laughs> um, no offense to him, but I it worked. I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I always felt really accepted in, in VSA. Like I felt very, very accepted. Yeah, I stood out like a sore thumb because I was half black. I like, yeah, I was the darkest person in the room, but no one ever really like said anything and. I had a lot of shared experiences with the people in that room. Mm-hmm. Like there were, there were other mixed kids. But most of them were like half white. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of other mixed kids in that room or, you know, kids who didn't speak Vietnamese, who didn't learn it. Their parents didn't teach them. So in that aspect, I related with them. Right. The only time that I ever like my identity did come up. So after like the whole Lunar New Year incident, I attended a tech festival with my mom because I think a part of me, like, I think there's always that I need to prove myself. And it's really hard to get rid of that. Like it is. Yeah, I know that I don't need to prove myself, but it's always in the back of my mind. I think yeah. especially after like, you know, back what happened in February, I was like, you know, also I never been to a tech festival. And I was like, Oh, fun. Right. So we went to a Tet festival, and I don't know if this lady was Vietnamese. I'm going to assume she was Chinese because they were handing out the Shin Yun cards. But I wore an Ayai, which is the traditional Vietnamese dress, and she looked at me and she went, "Oh, you're wearing like a Vietnamese costume." I was like, "Yeah," and she and she said, "But you're not Vietnamese because of my black mother, of course." And she looked so confused, and I was like, "No, I am Vietnamese." And I don't remember what happened after that, but I remember she was really confused mm. and it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. And it brought me back to those times where like my mom and I, also because I'm like black mom, Asian dad, which isn't mm-hmm. as normal. It's like, not as common. Yeah. Cause I'm the reverse. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, well, like, the thing is, I'm sure, I'm sure there's quite a few, but I think yeah. because of like the military and other things like that, that's why we see more of the, you know, the reverse version yeah. of it. And um, even though, again, not all mixed Asians are military mixed, um, you know, that also. But yeah, I I can see how you would definitely feel like the minority, even amongst mixed Asian and Black people. Yeah, it, it kind of just brought me back to my mom would say that every time we would go to the Korean market to buy a Korean barbecue, that they would kind of stare at us a little bit. But she kind of always assumed it was because she was the black parent and not like she wasn't an Asian woman. Mm. Um, but my mom, like my mom's really into Asian culture. And I think like being with my dad kind of made her interested in it and like the different foods and stuff. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I feel like happens all the time, too, because for 
in particular for black mixed Asians, white mixed Asians, Asians tend to accept that they're both white and Asian somehow. But in cases like us, I feel like us being black erases the Asian in some way, shape or form, because even at, like I've been to, I went to a Japanese hairstyle after many years of, of, of trying to think that I had more mixed hair than it really is. I'm, it's definitely very much Asian textured hair. I started going um, to, I started looking for Asian hairstylists. So I found this Japanese woman. I told her um, that I was Japanese and black and she kept touching my hair, telling me she didn't understand why my hair wasn't nappy. And I was like, first of all, don't say that. <laughs> and second of all, I, I'm Japanese also. My hair texture is Asian. It's Japanese hair. And she kept going, she kept shaking her head when she was so, and she acted like really confused. And I was like, my mother is Japanese. My father is black. I have two parents, <laughs> you know, like I'm trying to talk like yeah. almost, you know, as elementary as possible, like two parents are contributing to this. And even as, as light as I am, cause I am a very light, I mean, I'm dark for a Japanese person typically, but I'm light for a black person, you know. And she just kept going, no, no. Like every time I tried saying Japanese, she was like, no. Because all she could understand was that I said I was black and therefore nothing else happened. Mm -hmm. And it's the same on my Japanese side of the family too. Like the way that I have to explain why I think I'm Japanese. And for them, it's because I wasn't born in Japan, so I'm not Japanese. But it's also because I have a black father that I'm not Japanese, right? And I feel like that happens a lot with um, black mixed Asians, or at least what I hear on the show and, and in conversations I have is, is that they can accept that we're black. They don't understand how you could also be Asian. But white Asians don't seem to have this same thing. Well, with a white Asian, I, I guess it's more that white people decide if they're Asian or if they're white. But the Asian yeah. people just kind of accept them in their lives. That's very interesting. Because I had a friend tell me once that, well, so he is from like a town that's predominantly Asian. Like it's mostly Filipino people, but it's predominantly Asian. And he told me once that his friends, his Asian friends were like, yeah, but you're half white, so you're not really Asian. And I like I've always thought it's interesting because that man looks white as heck to me. Like super your friend, white. he's a very white passing. Mm. Well, I guess that would make sense because he's white passing, and that's why they were like, "No, nah, like no, you don't count." Yeah, but I, I think it's very interesting, but I also do think it's a generational difference. Like I guess the Vietnamese spaces that I've been in have also been on a college campus, so mm -hmm. it's very different. Like my generation is very like liberal and accepting but then I guess I don't really go seeking black spaces anymore mm -hmm. um but when things I do see on the internet like like when Zendaya was became the first black woman to win um, in the drama cut like, yeah whatever thing she won twice I like the comments were lighting her up they were like she's mixed you shouldn't yeah. black and I it was, it was so frustrating it's so bizarre because when Halle Berry won the Oscar for the the first you know black woman to win an oscar for best actress so there was already previously a best supporting but a best actress nobody questioned the fact that she had a, a white mom but me <laughs> you know like i was the one that says you know like i appreciate what's happening here but at the same time let's not forget that she 
she is mixed. But that was more like I was also quite a bit younger at the time and I was trying to find my whole identity. Um, so, you know, what is this? Maybe 15. No, it's it's got to be closer to probably 20-ish years, close 17 to 20-ish years since Halle Berry won the Oscar. And she was the first black woman, no questions asked. Even to this day, it's not questioned that she is half white. But Zendaya has essentially the exact same situation going on. And this generation is saying, no, she's not the first black woman. She's the first mixed woman. Um, it's definitely a generational thing. Because I think my generation, and I will say that, like, I have sought the support of the Black Student Union. Um, but it was only, like, one time. And to be fair, I never actually went to a meeting. Mm-hmm. So I can't judge USC's Black Student Union. I don't know. I just, when I when I enrolled in USC, I intentionally did not seek out the spaces after my multiple experiences of being excluded. Yeah. Um, plus, that was like, no, that was before the pandemic. Yeah, I just didn't join the spaces. But I do think it's interesting. And it's very much generational. Like this generation is very much, we should get rid of the one drop rule. And I, under, I do understand. I understand the logic and why it's problematic. Mm-hmm. But also on the flip side, it's like, well, most mixed black people are told that they're too X, Y, Z for the other exactly. yeah. and it leads to a culture of exclusion. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is a weird thing because uh, as, as a as a person who grew up extremely aware of my mixedness, like both of my parents are, are biracial um, and all of my cousins, all of my aunts and uncles, every single person I'm related to, except for my grandparents (laughs) are mixed. You know, I have a a British white grandmother and a black grandfather on one side of the family. And I have a Japanese uh, grandmother and a white American grandfather on one side. So with with the exception of those four monoracial people, every other person in my family is mixed. So I was very much aware of being mixed my entire life. And the way I sought validation when I was younger was in predominant black spaces because those were the neighborhoods I was in. Those were the schools I was going in. And black people were the only people that didn't make me feel weird for being mixed. They just accepted that I was what I was, but they would tell me in a way that definitely comes from the one drop rule, but is in a co-opting kind of way. So the problematic definition of the one drop rule where the white supremacy was using it as a way to keep us excluded. We just adopted that over many generations and decided, okay, if you're, if you're a little bit black, you're black, but it was done in a welcoming, a welcoming way. And just like, you're one of us. And there, and that's more obvious for a person like me than for a black, white, biracial person. That's like light skinned black and therefore will be seen as black, but will be, you know, maybe they acknowledge that they have a white parent or something like that, right? Like, for them, it's like, great, at least somebody is seeing me. I also know I'm going to interact out in the world and people are going to perceive me as black. Whereas me, I'm too ambiguous. So someone, black people saying, you're a little bit black, you're all black, was helpful for me in terms of me feeling like I needed validation because I knew I wasn't getting it on the Asian side. I couldn't participate in any Asian... um, let's say Asian American spaces, because that's a very, that's also a different thing. You know, like we're Asian here, we're not Asian back home. So like the Asian American thing and putting all of us together, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, whatever. um, And those kinds of spaces, I, that's where I was not enough of. That's where I felt not enough of. And so for me, I just, like you, I tended to naturally gravitate towards the people that were more accepting of me. 
And whenever I attempted to try, something would happen that would invalidate me and I it would, you know, rush me back. Oh, so the reason why I tell I would tell people I was weekend Japanese is because I would be like, I could only be Japanese in my grandma's house on, you know, when I wasn't in school and whatever. Um, and what's happened, you know, over the course of time, I think what I think it was also well met that turned into a bad thing. Like the one drop rule was a bad thing that turned into a welcoming thing. And then the next generation, when they took it over, they're trying to be their mixed ass selves, which is the slogan of this podcast. They're trying to be their full mixed thing. And in doing so, have started to gatekeep or police identity in a way that is forcing someone like you or me to pick one. And I have grown up in a time where picking one is not really the thing. I was literally the way people would describe me if they introduced me was she's black with a with a Japanese mom. You know, it was just accepted that like she's in, let her in, leave her alone kind of a thing where that doesn't seem to happen anymore. And I, I, I do think it's a way of people feeling like I get to be my whole thing, but identity is individual and you should be able to own it however you feel like you own it. For me, there's times when I feel very Japanese, but I'm never not black at that time, right? And vice versa. There's times when I mostly feel very black, but I'm never not also Japanese or aware of my light skin or my straight hair or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's so unfortunate that that's what's, ha well, okay. For me, I'm being judgmental and old for me. I think it's, it's unfortunate because in the attempt for people to be their full mixed ass selves, they're actually creating situations that would make those moments for you happen of you feeling invalidated. Even, I think there's times that it's happening to you when it's not intended even like, I think there's times when people actively do try to invalidate us as mixed people. But I think like it could just be sort of accidental sometimes and people just talk and they say weird stuff that is terrible for those of us that are mixed because it does try to put us in this like you got to pick one type of, of yeah. phrase because I'm sure you could find mixed black. I'm sure you could find black spaces that you would not feel uncomfortable in. You just haven't had access to them. And at this point, you've been invalidated enough that it's going to be very difficult for you to ever feel comfortable, probably. Yeah, I don't think it's even a pick one. It's like a just say you're mixed. People don't, people don't understand what that means. Like, there's yeah. <laughs> arguing that mixed should be its own category on the U.S. census. Mm -hmm. But the U mixed it's, is of multiple ethnicities or races. complicated, yeah. To me. It doesn't. But I did hate those those scantrons in elementary school when it was like <laughs> pick one, pick one. Yeah, like I don't know which one. It's so which funny too because the times in which I felt the most invalidated in school when it was like picking the you know having to pick one, almost always became because I automatically circled everything that I was, and then I turned it in and get rejected. And the teacher, and so it was always the white teachers who would tell me. Oddly enough, to pick white, they would tell like they they would tell me pick white. It will make it'll make it easier for you. Yeah. And I didn't know what they were saying. I was a kid, right? Yeah. Um, but then I kept going. That doesn't make sense for me because, like, yeah, technically I'm half white because I have two white grandparents. But I wasn't raised around white people. I don't even know my grandfather really, so I can't claim white. I didn't even grow up in a neighborhood where there were many white people, so I really don't know how to relate to white people. 
but I do know how to relate to black people and I do vaguely know how to relate to some Asians, at least the ones I'm related to for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. So that sucks first that they did that. The other part is I would caution, if you get into this conversation again, I would caution mixed people about the census that if you check multiracial on the census, it defaults to white. Really? On the, yeah, so... In the well-meaning, because I know some of the people who were the people who fought to get the, the multiracial category on the census 15 years ago, I know some of them, and I've had these conversations with them. And what they what they said is that, you know, their effort to try to do this was to be inclusive and give us a space where we didn't feel like we had to pick one. But what the government did and what the people who fought for it intended didn't match up. So basically, the census is designed to, to route funding to different communities, right? And so if your dominant community in a given area is predominantly black, they will have to give funds to a predominantly black space. If the it's if it's predominantly white, if it's predominantly Asian, da 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 da. But if you pick anything that is ambiguous or the population is mostly white in that area, it will default to higher funds because it's white people. And so it's actually not in our best interest as mixed people to pick mixed on the census. But it is in our best interest to pick mixed on a hospital form because we need them to be looking for all the things that affect us as, you know, there are some things that typically uh, happen to black folks. There are some things that typically happen to Asian folks. So in a medical scenario, you definitely want to pick everything and you want to make sure your record reflects everything that you are. But on the census, you want to pick whatever your brown is. And if you're two kinds of brown, you pick the most brown, the what's more reflected in the neighborhood you're in. Because that's that's going to ultimately benefit the, the community at large versus you as an individual. Oh, that sucks, really? right? I didn't know that. <laughs> I recently wrote an essay. It was for a final project um, for one of my classes. And I wrote an essay. It was a very liberating essay about my experience growing up mixed. Uh, ironically, that came out like before... I I published it in December um but something I found was that all of the studies they only cite mixed black and white people and yep. I'm like okay and yeah what about us the yeah. experience of a mixed and like a black and white person is very very different to someone who belongs to two marginalized groups like I yeah. think it was so interesting to me and I like I noted that in my essay I was like yeah this is weird you know, like I didn't really see any of this. I, yeah. But that's why I interviewed, and then I interviewed people myself, um, mm -hmm. like four people, and I attempted to get like a variety of, you know, mixes, which is kind of difficult. But I just interviewed people I knew. Yeah, it's it's a good thing that's happening now that it's becoming a little bit. There there are some there are more mixed platforms that people are starting to investigate that stuff a little bit more so hopefully we are looking at a future that does include people who come from multiple marginalized groups but for the longest time like and even when I was coming up when you said mixed you meant black and white and so I that's why it, it became a thing where people I started to describe myself or people started to describe me as having a Japanese mom because it was it was and of course almost important for me to make sure people didn't think I was white you know Plus, you got the difference between like raised by a white mother or a white father and a black mother, you know, like th those types of mixed situations also vary, too, and need to be accounted for in those studies. But mixedness is complicated and it's 
it's hard to try to nail that. And you definitely can't say one thing for our entire community. The, the thing that I try to do with Militantly Mixed in terms of building these narratives is to show just how diverse we are, even within our mixed community, so that hopefully people start to realize it's more than just black and white, um, like literally and figuratively, <laughs> you know, the, the complications of talking about of race and identity. So in terms of your work, so you, in, in college, you ended up dropping the... Um, the black studies as well or did you yeah so i i i swear it's only took one class but i was a minor i was enrolled as a black studies minor and then i took yeah. one class and then i dropped it you dropped it um i dropped the minor but you know what everything happens for a reason um now i have two bachelors so if i didn't do that i wouldn't have two bachelors yeah probably and then, how, like, so I feel like your mixed experience and some of the stuff you did when you joined, especially the VSU and things like that, added to kind of what your career path ultimately is kind of looking like. So how how is your mixedness sort of informing what it is you're doing with your online art gallery and with your, your teaching and everything? Uh, my online art gallery just, I, de- I think, definitely came. So I took a a class when I was um, living in Portland, Oregon, and it was a race and social justice focused class. And each quarter we had a different theme. Winter quarter, it was, we had like, it was SWAPA themed and SWAPA, I think it stands for spoken word as mm-hmm. performance activism or performance art, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote, I, I wrote a poetry, like a poem, not a poetry, <laughs> a poem. Um, it was about my anger about all the school shootings and my professor was like hey you should publish this and it was a multimedia piece so I had a friend compose like a a piano part nice because I I don't know I just was like hmm this would be so much better set to like really sad depressing piano music (laughs) um well it gets like angrier as you go he he's very talented very talented musician um And then I looked for spaces and I couldn't really find any. And then I think I just was like, you know what? All of these spaces, first of all, most of them didn't accept multimedia art. Um, So initially my organization started out, well, when it was forming in my brain, um, started out as a website for people to submit multimedia art. But then I Mm -hmm. thought about it and I was like, well, I feel like a lot of art spaces, both physically and online are white dominated and there's a lot of conversations that artists of color have and want to have that sometimes you don't want to have with white people like you would rather have them with people right. who understand the struggle like yeah it's important for white people to like recognize their privilege and learn about these things but there are some times where it's better to be in a space absolutely um i also so in los angeles we have this place called the underground museum and it's like a space for like black art black people and I like, I'm just thinking about this right now. I'm like, maybe subconsciously, my experience being there had something to do with, you know, my, my recognition of the fact that all these spaces are white dominated. And there, you don't see a lot of spaces like that. Mm-hmm. LA is a huge, diverse pot. But still, there's still it's super white still. Like, yeah. Yeah. Most of the superficial, like, you know, most of the fancy art places, they're white. Yeah. Um. So it's online right now, just because I was a broke college student. I'm still broke right now. So, 
And yeah. we also had a pandemic too. So getting people yeah. access from multiple places is, is a good tool, I think also. Yeah, I think that's kind of how it came out. I actually launched it pre-pandemic. So in oh, July okay. of 2019, I launched our website and our Instagram. Um, we're going to be celebrating our four-year anniversary in July of 2023. Cool. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it came about. I don't know if my identity, I guess my identity as an artist of color specifically influenced that, less so me being mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is there, so I know that you have mentioned that you've done a number of different things that were either race related or social justice related and stuff in terms of your studies. Is that also going into your teaching as well? Or is just, that's just a, you just happen yeah. to be a teacher of color. So it's just naturally I there. Think, so I got my bachelor's, like I said earlier, my, I, I got a double bachelor's. So my first is in psychology and my second was NGOs and social change, which is mostly a fancy way of saying nonprofits and sociology, mm-hmm. well, nonprofits slash NGOs. So I've always been like social justice focused. I was put onto the social justice track at a really young age. I went to a charter school, a really progressive charter school. My humanities teacher in eighth grade, who I still talk to to this day, um, I actually just emailed him recently. Um, I'm trying to get my organization to recruit at the high school that he currently works at. Mm. But I remember he told me, or he, we were reading about like the American dream. And I just remember, so he's Indian and he was like, the American dream is not real unless you are white. And yeah. I think that blew my mind. And I've always thought about that. Like, mm. it's always been in the back of my mind. And then I enrolled in USC. I kept meeting these people with the NGOs major. And I was like, well, that's, you know, something I want to do. I was having a career crisis at the time. And now I just knew that I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And then I've always known that I wanted to be a teacher. But my parents were like, no, you're going to you're gonna not do that because you're not going to make a lot of money. <laughs> and I turned 20 during the pandemic. And I was like, I don't have to listen to you anymore. I'm an adult. <laughs> And now, um, well, I'm currently applying to graduate school to be mm. a teacher. So, oh, okay, yeah, mm. but I do think social justice will play a big part in that. Um, I'm really interested in like ethnic studies and teaching English, but from an ethnic studies lens and bringing in like more diverse books and things like that. Nice. Yeah. Well, this has flown by like way faster than I expected it to, even though I do this every week <laughs> for four years. Before before I get out of here, though, I like to ask all of my guests, um, what do they love most about being mixed? I think, hmm. I don't know. Like, is, it t- is it tough for positive reasons or negative reasons for you to answer? It's tough for me to answer because I was going to say the cultures I have access to and then I remembered that I don't really feel like I have access to <laughs> okay. community. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I think I think the thought that when I have kids, they're gonna be exposed to a bunch of cultures because regardless of who I marry, even if the person I marry is monoracial, mm-hmm. they're still gonna have all these mix. different like cultures to have access to I think that's cool. Like I, mm-hmm. I think that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't you let everybody know how to find you, how to find the organization, and um, and even let's encourage people to submit, too. Oh, yeah. So my organization, like I said, it's an online arts gallery made by and for emerging artists of color. 
We accept submissions on a rolling basis. Um, you can check out our website, www.adcunidos.com. Um, and the first homepage should, if you scroll down, you'll see how to submit. Um, you can also explore our website, see the different art pieces people have submitted. You can follow us on Instagram at adcunidosx. Um, on Instagram, we're also on Facebook, same username. Um, but if you go to our Instagram, we have like a little link tree and links to a bunch of other stuff. And our podcast, we don't publish very frequently on the podcast. But if you want to be a guest, DM us and, you know, maybe we'll figure something out. What sort of art projects are submitted? Like, is it multimedia stuff? Is there Are there uh, categories? How, how do you um, want people to Yeah, so we accept all forms of art, visual, literary, um, film, dance, photography. Oh, photography is also visual. Um, I meant to say film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> film, dance, um, all of that, multimedia pieces. Um, do make sure that you check out our website for how to submit because it's different instructions depending, um, depending on, on your medium. It's based on how our website is structured. Okay. Um, it's just lit- it's only literary arts and multimedia pieces that have different instructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything else, it's like super simple. You email us your title of the piece, your name, age, hometown. Um, we ask that you provide your ethnic identity just because we like to show the diverse array of artists that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do monthly features. So as of right now, until October 15th, we are doing Latin Heritage Month since it's like September 15th through October 15th. So if you're a Latinx artist, um, you can submit on our Instagram, um, all the information. We have a pinned post on our Instagram for how to submit to that. But to our website, it's on our website. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your time. I know we we tried several times over the summer to make it work, but between your travel and my travel, uh, we finally got together. So I'm, I'm glad that we get to do that. I will also put a link in the show notes to the episode of your podcast that I did um, earlier this year and uh, and links to everywhere, but they can find you and everything like that. So for everybody out there, thank you for listening and don't forget to be your mixed ass sales. Peace y'all. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.